people say, well, you know, we're, we're not happy with what we're seeing going on in, in, in our local newspaper. What do we do? What's the best way to do? You know, I, I said, well, first of all, you're going to have to pay for it. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. As one news outlet after another downsizes and closes, who is going to do the journalism of the future? That's the question asked by Ken Tingley, the former editor of The Post Star, the newspaper in Glens Falls, New York. Over the last decade, Tingley watched as his newsroom went from a staff of about 50 to just seven today. He chronicles what has happened to local news in his new book, The Last American Newspaper, an institution in peril through the eyes of a small-town editor. Tingley's experience in Glens Falls, a city of 15,000 that is near the tourist centers of Lake George and Saratoga Springs, is part of a national trend. From 2005 to 2020, about a quarter of local print newspapers ceased publication in the U.S., Half of over 3,000 counties had just one local print newspaper, only a third had a daily newspaper, and over 200 counties had no newspaper at all. Vast swaths of the country have become news deserts. I began by asking Ken Tingley why he titled his book The Last American Newspaper. The title was something that had been a brewing in my subconscious probably for the last five years that I was editor of, of the Post-Star in Glens Falls. And what it was the constant kind of barrage of layoffs that we had, cuts to the paper getting smaller, and the inability to do the journalism that we really had gr- had a great reputation for doing and doing quite well. So when I kept, got to sit down and started writing this, the last American newspaper seemed quite obvious. And, and it really wasn't meant to be taken literally for my newspaper. It was really a metaphor for all the newspapers, uh, uh, small newspapers, community newspapers across the country, and what they are also going through. And I'm sure you've seen that in Vermont and, and, and really all along the, the Northeast. And it's it asks the bigger question, uh, who is going to do the journalism in the future? And uh, wh- how important that was. And, and what I tried to do is to show a lot of the great journalism that we did and what a difference it made in our communities and that people really need to pay attention because uh, without it, uh, we're all going to be probably in, the, in a lot of trouble. Well, as a community newspaper, you really capture the the pulse of a you know, a relatively small geographic area. Introduce us to Glens Falls, because I have to confess with a little bit of guilt, I know it is a place that I drive through from Vermont on my way to get on the New York <laughs> Thruway heading south. Um, but you know it a lot better than that. So sure. introduce us to your hometown. Well, it's not my hometown, but I've been here 30 years. So, you know, you know how it is with local people. You're not here from here, even though you've been here for 30 years. But yeah, Glens Falls is very interesting in the fact that uh, most people haven't really heard of it. When you're when you're going around the country and you say where you're from, you might say I'm from Lake George or I'm from Saratoga Springs. Much better, well-known places, although communities that are either quite a bit smaller or about the same time. 
so Glens Falls is kind of sandwiched between those two places, Saratoga Springs to the south with the horse racing in the summer, and it's really well known for that great downtown. Lake George in the, in the north where, you know, it's such a huge tourist attraction and, and uh, the beautiful lake and the Adirondack Mountains. So here's Glens Falls, and it had its really its own identity. Uh, it was a paper mill town. Uh, for years and years, and and it was the hub of, of a lot of that type of uh, of industry, a blue collar place, and uh, it, it has um, you know gone through a lot of what America has gone through in terms of losing a lot of the manufacturing jobs, losing that blue collar image, um, and uh, it it struggled, but it has managed to uh, kind of rebuild itself. It has a nice downtown. Restaurants. It has an Adirondack Theater Festival, Broadway caliber shows. Uh, we have a professional hockey team in, in downtown. Uh, used to be an American Hockey League team with the Adirondack Red Wings, which were very successful. Now it's a ECHL uh, uh, franchise that's that's owned locally. Um, so it's it's a it's a it's a great place to live. Um, I refer to it very often. Uh, in 1946, Look Magazine came to Glens Falls and did a photo spread about it and called it Hometown USA. And it became synonymous with all those values, the friendly front porches and uh, just that great place to live. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, but what the newspaper and we always try to do is it wasn't without its problems. And we tried to point them out and, and with our journalism and, and address them whenever we could. And it's a town of about 36,000, which would put it up in Vermont's context. You would be, I think, the second largest uh, a city or town, whatever you want to call it, in Vermont after Burlington. So uh, I, what... I think it's actually a little smaller than that. It's, it's about 15,000, 15, the city 000. proper. The city is pretty small. If you get into neighboring Queensbury, that's another 20. You put those two together, that's about 35,000. So, yeah. So for this town of, um, you know, whatever size we settle on there, <laughs> it has a, the newspaper, the Postar, has a storied history. of It's been around for over a century. Tell us a little bit about this newspaper. Yeah, it, 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 it's a newspaper that I think was first found, uh, founded in 1901. Like many small towns, it had uh, it had two newspapers, an evening and a morning paper for years and years. And then as things kind of uh, changed and grew, they ended up uh, combining uh, into one, one newspaper. Uh, I didn't arrive until uh, 1988 uh, as the sports editor, and I was sports editor for, for 11 years at a time when there was probably about 30 people in the newsroom and it was, uh, we were, we were growing. We had a very kind of a different type of newspaper in the fact that because of the tourism trade, we would be about a 30, 32,000 circulation paper in the, the winter time. But in the summertime, we'd go up to 40. <laughs> so we had that big influx of, of course, everyone read newspapers uh, in those days. Um, I, came, I became uh, editor in 1999, and uh, we actually grew the paper even more. Uh, 
what you know i what i later learned was you know the 1990s and even into the early 2000s was some of the most lucrative times for the newspaper business uh they were making a lot of money you had classified revenues and you had retail revenues and subscription revenues and it, it was a, a very nice time and i i built the staff up to almost 45 uh in our newsroom and again the arc of the whole book is that you know, it, 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 we, we kind of grew, we did great work. And then uh, after 2008, the financial crisis, crisis, the cell phones, iPhones, uh, online news sites, uh, all that disruptive in, in influences. And now, you know, we're down to, they're down to seven at the, the newspaper. So what was the turning point and when did you realize that, you know, the car was being thrown into reverse. I mean, you really straddle the heyday of print journalism right. and then what, you know, a very rapid decline. So when did you see trouble coming? Uh, you know, I, I would say it's probably right around the time of the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. And, you know, that's when you saw kind of that so many retail businesses dial back its uh, advertising revenues and everything. And, you, you know, I think you have to remember that, I mean, we hadn't really even gotten into, you know, smartphones then yet. You know, I mean, it's hard to believe that there was a time when there wasn't smartphones, but the iPhone was just being invented. Uh, you know, I, I think it's what, only 10 years old, uh, something like that. Uh, and so we didn't have that uh, yet. We didn't have those kind of, you know, the biggest thing discussions we were having at the time was whether our uh, online website should be paid or unpaid. And we were actually a, a, an odd uh, creature in that we were charging very early on in the early 2000s for our website and had built up like 1,200 subscribers, you know. And uh, then we were bought by Lee Enterprises, which their model was, no, it's going to be a free website. Well, they they made us change to a free website. And then it became, uh, as we now know, uh, you know, gone back to paid. Uh, that you know the the news is 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 worth worth something. So I think in those early days, but I think even those of us in print, uh, because we were still uh, seeing pretty strong retail and classified advertising for a small city. We had a great classified advertising. Um, you know the Craigslist stuff hadn't really affected us that much. So it took a while for that to kind of really start coming coming into into focus. Um, you know, it, it was really more affecting us was that our corporate parent had uh, unfortunately uh, bought another chain, the Pulitzer chain, and gotten into a lot of debt, you know, put it all on the credit card, paid a billion dollars for 12 or 13 newspapers, including the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And uh, as they had to keep paying off those debts, you know, the only way for them to do it as revenues declined was to... Uh, cut staffing and 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 the, the the product. Talk about the stories that you oversaw. You went from sports editor to managing editor, um, and I, I enjoyed your telling how you managed to get yourself promoted was by um, almost going to the Albany Times Union, right. the big paper in the region, um, and nothing nothing like competition to ensure yeah. your your longevity um but talk about some of the stories that really stand out in your mind that demonstrate the importance that a community newspaper 
gives that really no one else may pay attention to. Yeah, it, it, I think there's one that specifically, and it has some some uh, beginnings uh, uh, roots in Vermont, and um, it, it it was right around 2000 2001, and and on, uh, you may remember this. It was when the uh, discussion of civil unions in Vermont was in full throat, and uh, Vermont was obviously one of the first states to uh, eventually pass the civil unions law, and. Um, we had a young reporter uh, at the time who was watching all this very closely. And he started wondering about, well, what about uh, the people, the, the, the men and women growing up gay in our small rural time, uh, towns in New York? And um, so he, he decided he wanted to do a story on that. So he went and, and found, uh, I don't know, a dozen or more people who had grown up gay in the Adirondacks. And it was called Growing Up Gay. And um, this was kind of, uh, you know, the beginning of the conversation, uh, you know, because this is like 2002. This is 20 years ago. And, you know, he, he had pointed out that, you know, this was a time when Ellen DeGeneres had just come out of the closet. You know, Will and Grace was starting to be a hit TV show. And he ended up uh, writing this in incredible uh, story that was really amazing from the standpoint of so many of the, the men and women put their names to it and talked about how they were ostracized in their small little towns all across uh, upstate New York into the, into the Adirondacks. So before we published the story, we had one small little problem. We, we, we hadn't really thought about a photo and someone thought about, well, why don't we get a, a same sex couple to, to pose and, and, we took a picture at a place at Congress Park in Saratoga Springs, place where they shoot wedding photos. And it was of this loving couple about to kiss. Well, as I said in the paper, what's wrong with that? Well, it was two men. And that didn't fly really well in, 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 the, uh, in my little newspaper town. The amount of uh, uh, feedback uh, what, that we got was just some of the most vile and hateful uh, letters that I think I've ever uh, seen. Um, and, but what was really encouraging was that this kind of went, this went on for a week to 10 days and then it kind of reversed. Then we started hearing the other side from people coming forward and saying, hey, you know, this is a part, people who are part of our community. We need, we need, to, be, we need to hear their story. It's, it's really brave of the newspaper to step up and talk about this issue because nobody's talking about this, this issue. And that was really encouraging. So, you know, you're saying, well, I think we might have done some good here. We began the conversation in our community about things maybe that people didn't want to talk about. Well, you have to flip forward now to eight years later when uh, there's what we have a local politician, uh, state senator named Roy McDonald, as conservative as guys you're going to meet, Republican through and through. And when uh, Andrew Cuomo was elected governor and announced that he wanted to make it a priority, have same sex marriage, the law of New York, uh, he had to go looking for Republican votes if he wanted to get that done. And Roy McDonald came out and said, I'm undecided. And then decided he was going to support same-sex marriage. And so here it was eight years and it ended up passing. Eight years later, it took, it took, and you'd like to say, well, okay, eight years later, we finally got it done. 
But then the Republicans primaried him. And he went up against uh, another person and his constituents, uh, you know, he heard from it, but they were split down the middle about whether he had done the right thing. And he stood up and said, listen, I'm part of the party of Lincoln. Everyone's included. And I'll stand by that vote. And I don't care what you say, but that was the right thing to do. Well, the primary came down to and he lost by 99 votes. And he could have gone on and, 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 and to the next, but he didn't. And, and he, 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 he lost the election. He dropped out of politics. And uh, it was a reminder that even eight years later, we hadn't really got there yet. You know? So, I mean, but that's what it was. It was the start was, you know, with a, a newspaper story from a young man at the Post Star to really got people talking about it. Roy McDonald's vote. We continued talking about it. And of course, you know, you'd like to feel like there's certainly a much more uh, acceptance uh, today than there was at, at any point in the past. And remind us when New York legalized same-sex marriage. I believe it was 2012. And, so, and was there civil unions prior to that? No. So no. it was a yeah. it was a more yeah. than a decade after Vermont yeah, civil New York unions. Was, yeah, way behind Vermont in terms of that uh, thing. But, you know, that, that it's, it's one of the reasons I really like the book is that, you know, a news event and one thing leads to 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 another. Uh, we, we did a, uh, we had a, a, a very uh, tragic thing happen. Our, our editorial page editor, Mark Mahoney, was uh, he, he stopped by the local Cumberland Farms one Sunday morning with his three daughters. He had a twin, I think eight, eight-year-old twins and, and an, a nine-year, 11-year-old uh, older daughter. And they were in the Cumberland Farms and Mark and his oldest daughter were up in their front and picking out some chips or something. When they noticed there was like a commotion uh, out in the parking lot and they turned and looked and they saw a car kind of uh, wedged in, blocking in another car. And Mark thought, well, maybe there was an accident or something. And a man got out of the car, pulled a long rifle out, walked up to the driver's side window and shot the woman. It was his estranged wife. He took a step, looked at Mark and his daughter and thing, t- kind of looked at him, took a step toward them and then went back to his car and, and, and left. And, you know, as newspaper reporters, you know, our, our, our guys get used to covering murders. Not a lot of them, but they do cover murders but they never witnessed them. And there's right hometown USA where this kind of act of violence, very public violence happened. And uh, uh, so Mark's first call was of course the 911. His second call was to the newspaper <laughs> and they were over there within a couple minutes. Um, Mark took this really seriously in terms of, you know, it, it shows the, the, how, how in deeply uh, I think reporters and editors are connected with their communities. And uh he, when I was interviewing him for the book, he said, you know, it was really a terrible time because my daughter was so frightened that this man was going to come back and harm her. And he said, it must have went, you know, this was like three of the worst weeks of our life while we were waiting for this guy to get captured. And I said, Mark, it was three days, but it seemed like three weeks in, in mm-hmm. retrospect. When the guy was uh, eventually sentenced, Mark vowed to his daughter that he would go to the sentencing and see for himself and report back to her and tell her uh, that uh, he would never harm her again. And and he did that and wrote a column about it that was uh, quite uh, uh, moving. 
you know, that she would always be safe, but she would always have that memory and maybe that you're never really safe. But the other part of this is, again, this this starts starts the, the in motion other things. The day after the murder, we met with our staff to talk about doing an in-depth uh, uh, project on domestic violence. About, you know, again, this is hometown USA. Well, it doesn't happen, but it, apparently maybe it does happen behind all those friendly front porches. So we put together a, 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 a two or three reporters and we did something very simple. We put a notice in the newspaper and said anyone who would be willing to talk to one of our reporters and do a story about their experience with domestic violence, we'll talk to them. You have to consider that for a second. You're asking someone who'd been through the most terrible, awful thing in their lives, and you're asking them to trust a complete stranger to tell their story. At, at potentially great risk to themselves. And, and potentially at risk. And 23 people came forward. 23 people came forward. So we assigned, a, 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 again, another young reporter. All our reporters seem to be young. <laughs> That's where you get them. And it was a, a young Australian man named Conrad Marshall, who's actually a pretty big deal journalist in Australia now. And uh, he, he interviewed every one of these uh, victims in depth. Um, and just consider that for a second, listening to these stories that were some of the most horrific stories I've ever heard about violence and threats and just the worst part, darkest part of humanity. And he would tell me, he said, yeah, I was a feature writer at the time. So I would, I would do my day job. I would go home for dinner and then I would come back to the, to the newsroom, to that big empty expanse. Everyone, mostly all the news people had left for the day. And I would sit there listening to these women crying, listening. And I often kind of wondered since then uh, if one of the reasons he did that was he didn't want to see any, he didn't want anybody to see him crying as well. Hmm. One of the things, again, you know, we came down to, we were getting ready to publish this story and we were very careful about, we didn't want to take pictures of any of the, the victims because of that danger factor. And, um, but we didn't know how to illustrate the story. We didn't have any kind of artist or thing to do a, a you know, a, one of those uh, illustrations. So someone finally had the idea, maybe there's strength in numbers. So we called up the, the 23 uh, victims that had come forward and we asked them if they would be willing to take a picture with other uh, domestic violence survivors as, as part of a photo group photo. And uh, nine said they would. And that's amazing in itself. And uh, so we, we scheduled this, uh, we, we set up this photo shoot in a, in a kind of grove, grove of pine trees in Crandall Park, oddly enough, in, about a mile from where the original murder uh, occurred. And uh, the women are spaced amidst this kind of very peaceful setting. And every once in a while, I come across the photo and I, and I look at it and I'm just um, awestruck by it. I, I, I look at the women, I look at their body language, I look at the expressions on their face. And you're trying to think, what are they thinking? What is their motivation? And ultimately I always come back to, uh, it's simply defiance that they've been through this uh, terrible ordeal 
and they're standing up for themselves and it's never going to happen to them again. And it's really, it's really quite, uh, uh, I think, uh, encouraging in quite, uh, you know, uh, just an inspirational, uh, photograph. Hmm. Uh, and the photo is in the book. <laughs> now the poster, check it out. The poster won a Pulitzer prize. Um, it did. talk about that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things, uh, that, uh, small newspapers doesn't happen very often. Although, uh, right after I became uh, editor of the paper, uh, I believe it was 2001, David Motes of the Rutland Herald won the yes. Pulitzer Prize uh, for uh, uh, editorial writing for the same-sex marriage uh, civil unions. Uh, right, and, uh, and David Motes, now a regular contributor to uh, VT Digger, so uh, he continues right? to and report. The, and and I interviewed David for for the book. He's in there as well as part of that whole chapter on the the growing up gay. And um, so my reaction to that as a young editor was to tell my staff, if Rutland can do it, we can do it. And uh, and we really we really I took that very seriously. You know, I, I I'm coming from sports. I I like to win things. Uh, it was all about winning and losing. And and I and I think that if you don't try, well, you're never going to have a chance. So we tried. Um, one of those areas was uh, Mark Mahoney, who was the one who witnessed the, the murder. He was our editorial page ed editor, very talented, big on freedom of information, open government issues. And, um, you know, I started talking to him and saying, you know, I, I went and judged the Pulitzers. You can play in this league. I've seen some of the some some of the, 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 the work there. I think you're as good as any of these guys. And, you know, he kind of poo-pooed it. And, you know, he entered a couple years and nothing happened. And finally, one year, uh, he put together a, 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 a basic, you put together 10 different editorials. Uh, and it was on freedom of information. And it was on, so it was nothing we planned. You know, it wasn't, I think, when David won his, it was like, he wrote, I don't know, like 50 editorials or something like that over the course of the year on this one subject. Well, we didn't really plan that. We just were always very serious about open government, about freedom of information. And every time some little government or village, you know, uh, didn't live up to that, we hit them with an editorial. And uh, so Mark put that in there. I mean, we had even had one editorial that did it explained to people how regular citizens could file a freedom of information request. Mm -hmm. Say, hey, you don't have to be anyone special. You can be just regular Joe citizen and you can do that. The, the thing about it was, you know, at, at big newspapers, you know, the Washington Post, New York Times. Boston Globe, they, they all know when Pulitzer Day is. Well, we have no idea. <laughs> to, to, to acknowledge that, I, I was on vacation in Florida. I hadn't really thought about it. And um, we, uh, uh, our, our, we, we had a pretty, I had a pretty good idea that he was going to be in the, in, in the finals. And um, uh, so we gathered everyone in. The, I remember our publisher. Uh, he he had everyone gather uh, in the in the conference room, and Mark was really afraid at the time because he said uh, a month a month uh, earlier uh, they we had done a all hands on deck and they and they they basically uh, had laid some people up. But anyway. I announced to Mark that he had won the Pulitzer and, uh, you know, everyone stood up, gave him a standing ovation, and it was, it was pretty amazing. You live in an area where you got to cover the beginnings of a political rising star, unknown to anyone, uh, perhaps, when she entered the scene, by the name of Elise Stefanik. 
tell us about your experience getting to know and covering Elise Stefanik and what her appeal was. Well, yeah, it was, uh, we, we had kind of lived through an era when uh, we had a congressman named John Sweeney, who, as it turned out, uh, was a kind of professional alcoholic for most of his time uh, in, in office and eventually was upset uh, by Senator Kirsten Gillibrand uh, to, to get his seat back in 2000. So after living through that, we didn't think, uh, you know, anything could be quite as bad as that. So Elise Stefanik came on the scene as a, a young woman, I think, of 29 at the time and went through the primary process. And she was a complete unknown uh, for anybody in our area. We had never heard of her. Uh, in fact, I, I just did a, uh, a column today on, on Brian Mann, who was working for North Country Public Radio at the time. And he did a, a, an amazing uh, piece of journalism at the time. Very simple. He went to the town of Willsboro, where she allegedly was saying she grew up. And no one knew who she was. <laughs> you know, now Willsboro, like many places probably in Vermont, it, you know, not a big place, you know. So everybody kind of would know you if, if, if that. So uh, the reality was she did grow up in Albany. She went to school at Albany Academy. Uh, her parents had a summer home up in Willsboro on Lake Champlain. Um, so w we had a, a lot of editorial boards with her at the beginning because of the um, uh, she was in the primary uh, fight with Matt Doheny. And I remember one uh, very specific time when it was Will Doolittle and myself and we were interviewing her. And um, we Will asked her about her stand on climate change. So, again, this is what, like 2012, 14? You know, it kind of settled science by then, at least in, in most circles, but maybe not all. Um, and she said something uh she said, well, she said, I'm not a scientist, so I don't really know. And it just so happened that I had heard John Boehner, the speaker of the House, or was he the minority leader at the time, say the exact same thing. Uh, and I was like, well, that's interesting. And Will uh, turned to her and said, well, Lise, you went to Harvard <laughs> and you don't, you, you, you don't know about climate change? So that was kind of maybe the start of maybe wasn't the uh, the best, uh, you know, a relationship. Um, we always found it very difficult uh, relationship. She didn't seem to really, you know, in the past with Congress people, you could call them up and get a, a reporter could call them up from the Guns Falls paper and they'd get a call back within a half hour. Um you know, depending on, on things, sometimes even sooner, you know, they didn't get a lot of attention. We were focused on other things. They were focused on other things, but that wasn't the case there. It, it was, it became, it was, it became a very difficult relationship to have those kind of just basic uh, relationship and, and, and to get basic information out, out of her, her office. Um, I was always struck by, I never really knew what she stood for. Um, you know, it's fine. You can be a Republican, Democrat, whatever, but she didn't seem to really have anything that she hung her hat on. You know, she fought drum, you know, because, well, we have a military base in her district, so she's going to be very pro Fort drum. And that was seemed to be about uh, uh, it. Um, and then as time went by, uh, you know, it, it, things got even a little more uh, dicey. 
uh, when she ran against Tedra Cobb, I believe in 2018, uh, they had the, she, she, the, I think the day after the democratic primary, they ran this really bad attack ad about, uh, uh, Tedra Cobb and her being pro gun, uh, anti-gun and pro gun control. And, um, I came up with a really great idea for our editorial board. And I went into the meeting. I said, why don't we ask them both not to lie? So we wrote an editorial. And said, <laughs> Seems like a fair request of a we, public we servant. We wrote an editorial and we said, listen, you know, there's a lot of, you know, we're asking you to just not to lie in your ads, not to lie to the press, not to, you know, uh, fake things. And just do that. And let's talk about the issues and let's talk about what you stand for. And Tedra Cobb uh, immediately sent us a letter to the editor. She said, I'm all on board. I'm fine with that. Well, we never heard anything about uh, uh, that at all. And, um, and then right after that, there was this incident where um, they had uh, the, come across a piece of videotape that they played in an ad of Tedra Cobb saying, well, in, in a meeting with a bunch of uh, teens for Tedra, uh, that she wasn't uh, uh, able to come out against a ban on assault rifles because there's no way she would win the election in a very red place like upstate New York. So they printed all that. Uh, or they didn't print it. They, they actually print you know, the video. They showed the, uh, the ad. Well, we did some good reporting and found out that uh, they had basically paid a high school student who was 17 years old $1,000 to secretly record uh, Tedra Cobb in, in that Teens for Tedra event. Uh, and, well, we didn't think that was right. <laughs> you know, do you really need to hire, uh, you know, teenagers for political espionage in this, you know, day and age? And it, so it was about as far from the... Uh, uh, that that is that's as possible um you know and then of course as you know when we got into the trump years she changed very dramatically from this person who was trying to be moderate and bipartisan and uh into uh being uh much more all in on on president trump and uh, and what he what he stood for um and that led to a lot of uh, a, a very, very difficult summer for us at, in Glens Falls. Uh, we have this, again, as I said, this beautiful downtown, a place called Centennial Circle, where there's this five-way intersection uh, where they've constructed a roundabout. Well, there used to be, uh, on a regular basis, uh, a group of liberals who would, you know, it could be a half dozen to a dozen people would show up and protest and, 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 and at Representative Stefanik's office. And then right after that, um, uh, a, a group of Trump supporters started showing up as well. And it started getting really, really ugly. Um, uh, there was, they would bring bullhorns, there was screaming, there was yelling, there was spitting on each other. It, it, it really was quite awful to the point where the liberal group moved over to the park and then they followed them over there. And, and it really became, you know, and I observed it many times that you, uh, you expected it to, to end up violently. Uh, at some point. At one point, the liberal group uh, uh, asked the, the city of Glens Falls, could you uh, please make a, a ban the use of these Trump flagpoles that they're waving around because we believe they could be used for weapons? Well, as we know now, that's exactly what happened on January 6th in, in, in the, at the Capitol. 
um, it, it kind of reached a crescendo that that September when uh, there was one man uh, who showed up with this ridiculous looking toy gun and he pointed it at our uh, our newspaper reporter and through a bullhorn started screaming, we got one coming for you, Postar. We got one coming for you. And he did that over and over again. And uh, our reporter felt threatened. I wrote a column saying, you know, the newspaper had been threatened. And uh, Brian Mann, <laughs> the North Country Public Radio guy, uh, he happened to notice that uh, this man was posting on his uh, Facebook page that he had been invited by Stefanik to her town hall meeting in the town of Kingsbury that coming week and that he had been praised for helping uh, to defend her office uh, and everything. So I immediately uh, wrote a, a letter, or wrote an email to the communications director uh, for Representative Stefanik, and I asked her to immediately denounce this man, that he had threatened our reporters, he had threatened our editors, he had threatened people at our newspaper and put their lives in danger. And that wasn't right. And she should denounce that man. She should come to our office and explain why she had done that. Never heard anything. So talk about the um, the impact and the, the changes that you saw for your local newspaper during the Trump era. As you know, you're increasingly hearing, you know, being accused of running fake news. Um, you're an interesting kind of microcosm of the country, a small town, as you say, hometown USA, and the impact the Trump years had on you and your newspaper. Yeah, it, there was definitely uh, what you saw as a trickle down effect. You know, I think at the beginning, you know, we tended to let things go sometimes when somebody, you know, got something wrong, a politician, even locally. Uh, but it became increasingly more evident. You couldn't do that. We started using fact checks on national stories and political stories. And, you know, we thought that might help. But then we started seeing it kind of trickle down into the local uh, aspect. We had one uh, town board member in Queensbury who stood up and said, after someone said, well, I read this in the Post Star. And he said, well, you can't believe half of what you read in the postdoc. And I said, well, you know, we, we publish about 400 stories a month. So you're saying 200 of our stories are not uh, uh, factually accurate. Can you tell me which of those 200 stories are not factually accurate? Can you tell me one story that's not factually accurate? And we'll address it. Never heard from but here's probably the one that I, I think it, it, it I'm just still amazed by. Uh, there was a, a, a small stupid issue at the, the town of Moreau, which is in Saratoga County. And they were arguing about the spending for the local recreation department. No big deal. But they started the town board started kind of bad mouthing the people at the recreation department. It wasn't really worth it. They're not really doing their job. Well, our reporter covering it wrote all that. And uh, the people at the recreation department were very upset, went to the board and they said, no, 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 that we, that we didn't say anything. We didn't say any of those things at all. It was totally made up. The reporter made it up. Well, our reporter remembered something very important. The Moreau Town Board tape records its meetings. So she went back to the meeting in question, found the times that every one of those statements were made, put it all on there, wrote into the story, 
put it online and told them, you know, and we wrote a, a, an editorial saying, you know, you just accused a, new, a, a newspaper reporter of lying. You've tried to ruin the reputation. You tried to ruin the reputation of the newspaper. You know, when we make a mistake, we correct it. We expect you to correct it as well. They didn't. We never heard a word from them. Never heard a word, never ever spoke of it again, as far as I know. You also talk about the impact uh, of the 2017 attack on a community newspaper in Maryland uh, in which five local reporters were killed and how that felt very close to home for you. Tell us a little bit about that. This was the Capital Gazette. Yeah, you know, I think even right from the beginning, I mean, I, I can remember just kind of reading snippets about the five people who were killed. And it was like, I knew each one of them. It was like there was somebody like that at my newspaper, somebody who did the hometown news. And there was somebody who was kind of in the, in the editorials and column writing. So there was, it, it was a very familiar thing. And then when you heard about the man who did the shooting's reasoning, it was like, we've had complaints like that too. Beefs from local people who threatened us, who said, uh, you know, they were coming to get us. It wasn't unusual, that type of thing, except this time someone had actually done something uh, about it. Um, I, I don't, you know, and this was right in that time period when, you know, you're having, you're being called an enemy of the people. You're becoming called fake news fairly, fairly regularly and like, oh, no, well, we've always known that all the time. I can remember one time uh, uh, our, one of our part-time reporters said, oh, by the way, I had to do a little cleanup out on the front step. Somebody had left our newspaper uh, on the front step wrapped in dog feces. I mean, what would, you know, what exactly pushes someone to do something like that? I, I, I don't know. But that that's it, it's what made, uh, I think, you know, the last several years before I retired very difficult. Because you always felt like, you know, the, the newspaper was respected and that was going away, too. One of the impacts of being downsized and the, you know, extreme financial pressures that was placed on the paper is um, you became vulnerable, as in your daily coverage, to some of the big power brokers in town who, of course, are the big advertisers, particularly in your case, <laughs> the hospital. Yeah. Like, talk about your tangles with the hospital, but also how it evolved to where really the newspaper, you know, you found yourself uh, with publishers who were not willing to take on the hospital, who were not willing to back you. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, I think had never happened before. We would do our, our work and we would do it well. And sometimes it costs the newspaper money. And the publishers kind of chalk that up to, well, that's part of the gig, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, that is not something you like to do, but that's what happened. In this case, it was an odd thing. We have a, a local hospital. It's the largest employer in town. And um, uh, they uh, actually called us to a meeting to tell us that they had been going through some financial difficulties. Uh, and, um, it was, you know, we were trying to pin them down. Well, how much money did you lose? Is that going to affect, you know, jobs, et cetera. And it, uh, oddly enough, we had, a, a we had these citizen representatives on our editorial board, uh, two or three at a time. And one of them brought up in the meeting saying, well, wait a minute, I read somewhere in this report 
that you filed that you lost $30 million last year. And they were like, oh, uh, well, no, no, that was just, that's just an accounting thing. And they kind of they kind of blew it off. And as we checked more into it, they had lost $30 million last year. And then we started asking questions about that and digging into that. And it became more and more kind of an acrimonious uh, relationship. Uh, and, you know, when I was writing the book, the reporters said, you know, uh, it was really difficult. He said, I had never been in a position before where someone just, you know, sometimes they would forget information or they didn't give you all the information and, and you'd give them that benefit of doubt, but they were just blatantly lying to us. And it was, it was hard to believe uh, they, were, they were trying to mislead us and take us in different directions. And it became more and more difficult to, to report on, uh, uh, on the subject. And we started hearing other things, uh, you know, uh, people on the board of governors were going to our corporate uh, uh, representatives and they were, uh, you know, complaining that we were out to get them. And, you know, why someone goes out to get a hospital, I'm not sure why you'd want to do that. We were trying to find out, well, what was the, the, the significance of it? I mean, as it turned out, they had lost the $30 million. They had uh, changed their billing system and the company that had done it forgot the system didn't work and they didn't bill anybody for a year and a half. <laughs> wow. I mean, it was really, you know, it was really horrific, you know, this mistake, but they were trying to, I guess, to cover up for, the, you know, this incompetence, but you know, no one ever uh, happened to it. So as we were going along on it, we, it seemed like our publisher became more and more involved in it to the point where he was starting to read stories before they were published. He started to, uh, uh, ch make changes. He killed a couple of editorials and that I wrote then as regular columns in my own name. Uh, and uh, it, it became uh, a, a very, very difficult uh, situation to deal with. And, you know, sadly, I don't think the truth totally ever came out because, you know, it was right around uh, 2021 when, and COVID was starting and the reporter got sidetracked doing that beat, basically covering everything to do with COVID and never really got back to, uh, you know, the, the other thing. And then she eventually was hired by the Times Union in Albany. Hmm. You ask in your book, and it's sort of the the, uh, you know, the the theme throughout your book, who is going to do the journalism in the future? How do you answer that? Yeah, that's it's it's. It's something that I, you know, I've been doing a lot of speaking engagements with, and it almost always comes up well, where people say, well, you know, we're, we're not happy with what we're seeing going on in, in, in our local newspaper. What do we do? What's the best way to do? You know, I, I said, well, first of all, you're going to have to pay for it. You know, now that may be a, a, a combination of things. Uh, we have a, a, you know, a friend of ours, former publishers uh, out in Missouri has started a nonprofit newspaper out there. Local community members who are well-heeled put a few million dollars in and they started a nonprofit new newspaper. We have a, 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 a an online site here, Foothills Business Daily, that's beginning to kind of break stories. It's where I found out that my taxes were going up in Warren County uh, or the town of Queensbury. And uh, so you're starting to see you need a variety of, of sources to, to do that. Um, you know, I, I find now I'm subscribing to the Times Union in Albany. I have my 
the, the post star I'm, I'm still have a subscription to i'm looking at a couple other online sites subscribe to the new york Times. it's like if you really want to be a good citizen you're going to have to do more and more but ultimately you know right now i think you know as margaret sullivan wrote about news deserts out there you know, I think we're going to go through a pretty rough patch here, I think, for the next few years until people understand. You know, I think once people, someone understand, figures out a way to make money on this, then they'll, the problem could get solved. But, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of it, it, there's a lot of angst, I think, over it. And I, I share that angst. What is the consequence in your community that you anticipate if the local newspaper doesn't survive? Well, I think, you know, they've already done studies on this, right? That, uh, you know, the number of people who vote will be less. Why? They don't know who's running for office. And I'm not going to go vote if I don't know even know who's running for office. There's going to be less community engagement. Uh, you're going to see your taxes go up because you know why? My taxes just went up 56% in the town of Queensbury. And I didn't find out about it until later on. Because normally the newspaper would have written a big story about it. There would have been headlines. People would have showed up at the meeting and complained. And that might have gone away. But that didn't happen because there was no story. So those are the things that I think you're going to see. You're going to see it's going to cost us all more money. You're, you, know, I, you know, we're going through this kind of really odd, uh, you know, thing in New York with the getting rid of Indian mascot names, you know, well, the Glens Falls High School is named the Indians. And, you know, so, you know, Cambridge, they've just gone through a whole uh, in Washington County, they went through a whole whole thing on that as well. So it's, uh, uh, it's certainly uh, those kind of, of, of things we used to be at the forefront of the conversation that newspapers would lead. And I don't think they're necessarily going to be doing that in the future. Well, and you're really talking about democracy itself, that, you yeah. know, newspapers are a pillar of democracy. And as news and informa independent information sources go away, people's desire to participate in the process is sort of uh, diluted. I mean, they don't even know what they don't know. Um, exactly. Hmm. Um, do you see some hope on the horizon? <laughs> uh, in In the short term? Uh, maybe not. I, you know, like I, I'm continuing to write my own column uh, using a Substack uh, platform and putting it out there. And, and I, you know, I think that uh, that's one of the things that a lot of people are missing as well. You know, there there was so much that came out about, uh, you know, just just newspapers to just print the facts. We don't want opinions. We don't want any of this thing. But I think that they missed the opinions and that because that's also part of the conversation. I never thought of that angle before. I never thought about that kind of thing or just even the stories about uh, people and their neighbors and, and, and things like that. So, you know, I, I'm writing that as a way to, you know, maybe be part of the solution as well. Uh, you know, and, and I could see someone eventually uh, breaking through on that and putting together, you know, maybe a little bit like you know vermont digger and and putting together a bunch of reporters and you know you're, you're selling subscriptions and you know maybe taking donations as well and that will help to put pressure on the daily newspaper to do a better job all right well we're gonna have to leave it there uh ken tingley i want to thank you for joining us on the vermont conversation it's always always a pleasure thank you
That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.